Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. Good morning, church. It's so great to be back at the East. This is the best church in the world because what other church in the world tells you to go and suffer for Jesus first thing before <laughs> even the sermon begins. So it's fantastic to, to be back. So I just want to start off with this very important question. Okay, What does Romeo and Juliet, Yip Man, and the parable of the Good Samaritan have in common? What does Romeo and Juliet, Yip Man, and the parable of the Good Samaritan have in common. Anybody wants to venture a guess? Okay, the answer is they're all good stories. And everybody goes, Jay, what kind of a question is that? <laughs> we all love a good story, don't we? And whether in books, in movies, or in dramas, we love a good story, even like in reality shows or in sports competition, we can really get into it when there's a really good story behind it. So for stories in general, there are two big categories. There are tragedies and there are comedies. So tragedies, they are very self-explanatory, okay? The trajectory goes up and down. It looks like a frown, okay? So it starts well, something happens, and then everything goes downhill from there. So you take the classic tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. Boy and girl exist, Boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl die because of very poor planning and communication. I can tell you that confirm they are not Singaporeans because if they were, they would have had a plan B. Comedies, on the other hand, they take the opposite trajectory. So they start okay and then they encounter some trouble but then the story climbs upwards to a happy ending. So take, for example, the classic good triumphs over evil stories. And we all love these stories. The story of the downtrodden, and, but the righteous person who encounters trouble, overcomes it and overcomes evil at the end. So think things like Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. Uh, the OG Star Wars, not the new ones, they are not that great. Then um, stories like this, of course, they don't just happen in Hollywood movies, but in every culture across the world, they have these stories, and we all love it when good triumphs over evil. So the question is, why do we love this kind of stories? Why does it resonate so much with us? Perhaps, perhaps, as humans, we recognize that at the core of it, we recognize that it reflect a true and universal reality. That the gospel really is the true story of a good God who created a good world and placed human beings in it. But we, as human beings, were corrupted by sin, we were corrupted by our love for greed and for power, but God stepped down into creation to rescue us, even at the cost of his own life so that complete and total victory might be won over sin, over death, and over Satan. And the Christian story, the gospel story, is a story of perfect good, perfect goodness, triumphing over evil. But as we look at what's happening in the world today, we see a picture of injustice and pain and suffering. There's the Sri Lankan crisis happening in our neighbours. 
There's the ongoing Ukraine war, which is threatening to turn into a, maybe a nuclear accident happening. To the recent threat of military conflict near us. And of course, we don't talk about it much, but, but there is the ongoing civil war in Yemen. And over the last seven years of brutal fighting, nearly 400,000 people have perished in the fighting and in the famine. Injustice, pain and brokenness. We all experience this because of sin. And we, who are human beings, are made in the image of God. We are made, created, intended to reflect God's goodness, God's justice and God's righteousness to each other. But we fail to live up to that in our interactions, in our relationship with each other these days. So I just want to recommend you a great video on God's justice. This is the Bible Project video on justice. You can scan the QR code later. You can have a watch on it. I don't have time to show you all six minutes of it now. But this tells you about God's justice and how we as human beings are meant to reflect that to the world this day. And injustice exists. You feel it. I feel it. We experience it. And today's passage in 2 Thessalonians tells us that Christians are also not exempt from injustice because the church in Thessalonica is undergoing great injustice. They are undergoing persecution for their faith. And the reason why they endure is because of their hope, their hope in God's justice at the final end. At the end, there is hope. At the end, there is hope in God's perfect justice. But as we Christians await the perfection of God's justice, what does he call us to do in the here and now? Out of the text in Thessalonians today, there arises two soul-searching questions. The first question is, when persecution comes, will we be counted worthy? And the second is, when the end comes, will we have rescued any? Would you bow your heads with me as we go to God in prayer? Father, as we come before you and as we dive into your word this day, may your Holy Spirit bring to us conviction and revival as we come back to the core, to the crux of the gospel this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let us read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 to 10. I'll be reading from the NIV version. So verse 5 says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you believed our testimony to you, and may God bless the reading of his word. What is happening in the Thessalonian church? So the church family as a whole, not just individuals, as a whole, they're experiencing persecution and affliction. And from 1 Thessalonians, we've read how the persecution keeps continuing. So what caused the problem in the first place? 
The problem is that the apostles who have been going around to different churches to preach and the church in Thessalonica have been accused of proclaiming another king other than King Caesar. And that's, we look at Acts chapter 17, verse 5 to 7. And they, referring to some jealous Jews, they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, being accused of sedition and going against the decrees of the Roman emperor is bad enough, right? But what are the practical implications? So, if the city officials don't stamp out this problem, Thessalonica as a city could lose its favour with Rome. And with, when you lose favour with Rome, you also lose your privileges, you lose your economic benefits, and then they are a little bit concerned about that. So, the city officials would be extremely motivated to stamp out the problem. So, how would they do it? So, apart from maybe physical threats, they would probably withdraw certain privileges from Christians who are doing their businesses and who are providing goods and services. And like what Ben mentioned last week, they'll probably also be booted out of the trade guilds that they make their money from. So, apart from physical threats, the suffering also includes social and economic oppression. They were being attacked spiritually, they were attacked physically, socially and economically. Their very lives and their livelihoods were being threatened. So think of the whack-a-mole game at the arcade. Anybody played before? You don't know what I'm referring to, okay, I tell you. Okay, you know there's this, there's this machine, right? Then the mole that pops up, every time the mole pops up, then you whack the mole down, and then another mole pops up, then you whack the mole down with a hammer. That's essentially what the city officials are doing to them. Each time they pop up, bam, and then it oppresses them. They are being oppressed in every area of their lives. And this is what the Thessalonian church is going through. But Thessalonian church, very good. They are staying together, they are stronger together, and they are holding up under the persecution very well thus far. But then another problem comes. So for some reason, some teachings begin to circulate among the church that the day of the Lord had already come. You can look forward to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And all this while, Paul had been encouraging them to stay firm, stand strong, look forward to the day of the Lord, you will be vindicated. And then they are like, but what do I hear about the day of the Lord has already arrived? What does this mean? Huh? If this has already happened, then how come I'm still here suffering? What is the meaning of all this? Where is my vindication? And so here, Paul is addressing their concerns. And Paul is assuring the church that God is still just despite all that they are still facing, all that they are going through. God is not blind or asleep. And at the end, those who are persecuting them will stand before God in His judgment. And what happens to suffering believers at the end? Verse 10 tells us that on that day, referring to the day of the Lord, He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. When Christ comes back as judge, He will vindicate all of God's holy people and glory awaits all those who endure in steadfast faith. But in the meantime, Paul assures them, emphasizes 
that God knows their suffering, sees their suffering, and still honours them and still counts them as worthy. So one of the lingo that the younger generation um, uses these days is, I see you. Okay? It's often used to express when you notice that they're doing something like impressive or cool. So for example, I made the school team, and you're like, I see you. Okay, another, but it has also evolved to express a deeper appreciation and understanding of where they're coming from. So, I feel devastated that I lost a dream job. And then your response is, I see you. So, in a certain way, God is also saying, I see you to the Thessalonian church. And he counts what they are going through as worthy. He counts them as worthy, those who are willing to endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom. And for us who go through afflictions these days, maybe not persecutions, but afflictions, God is also saying to us, I see you. I see what you're going through. And I see your willingness to go through that, your testimony as you go through that. I honour that and I count you as worthy. And all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. In God's economy, suffering and glory, tribulation and kingdom often go together. In God's economy, suffering and glory, tribulation and kingdom, they often go together. But let's first of all clarify what Paul does not mean. He does not mean that our willingness to endure or to um, suffer more makes us worthy. It's not about earning individual worthiness in the sight of God. Like, you know, the more you loon, the more you suffer, the more worthy you are. That's not what he's talking about. But because we are willing to endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom, therefore we are deemed worthy, we are counted worthy, not that we have earned worthiness. Okay, so maybe let's unpack this a little bit and ask, what does being counted worthy really mean? So here's an analogy. I'm not sure it's perfect, but hopefully good enough. So, Wagyu beef. 15 years ago, Wagyu beef like super expensive, super rare, super premium. I remember back in those days, I think they tried to charge like $100 for a Wagyu burger. But these days, you can buy Wagyu beef anywhere, even Shopee. The question is, what kind of a Wagyu beef is it? So in Japan, where it originated, they don't even call it Wagyu beef. They just name it after the prefecture that the cows come from, whether it's Kobe, Miyazaki. Okay, some of you are thinking about lunch. It's okay, it will be, we'll get there soon. So US and Australia, they also started breeding some of these cows, right? So it's Japanese cattle, but due to cost, most of the Wagyu that they breed is crossbred with a Angus uh, breed or some other breed. So it's not fully Japanese Wagyu. So due to pretty loose labeling laws across different countries, you can still call it Wagyu as long as there's some Wagyu blood inside the cow, right? So if you find cheaper Wagyu these days, more than likely it has been crossbred and diluted so as to speak. So to tell if it's really full Wagyu, how do you tell? You eat it. The proof is in the eating, right? The proof is in the eating. When you bite into a full Wagyu steak, you just know it's Wagyu. It counts as Wagyu. It's the real thing. So the question for us today is, are you real Wagyu or are you not? 
That's what it means to be counted worthy. When we are tested and tried to be the real thing. The real thing. Real kingdom disciples by the way we live, expressed in our willingness to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. God is not elevating suffering. Let me make it clear here. God is not elevating suffering. Just because you suffer doesn't make you more holy. He knows it's painful. And in the end, he promises that there will be relief, there will be perfect peace, there will be relief from suffering at the final end. But in God's economy, his timing for vindication may not sync with ours. In God's economy, he allows suffering and persecution for the sake of his kingdom. In God's economy, suffering and glory go together. And if we are to be perfectly honest with ourselves, our human nature doesn't always prefer God's economy. Who here likes pain? I think maybe only those who like to go to the gym, they like pain a lot. But even the best of us Christians, we prefer not to go through pain. But when suffering, pain and persecution is allowed by God in His sovereignty, how then should our response be? This is Bishop John Leonard Wilson. He's an Anglican bishop. He was sent to Singapore by the Anglican Church four months prior to the breakout of World War II in Singapore. And when um, the war broke out, he worked tirelessly to continue ministering to the people until he himself was interned in Changi Prison. So even in prison, he risked his life to minister to his fellow prisoners of war. But he was also not spared from torture, and he endured a full eight months of torture during his internment in Changi Prison. And one day, he recounts in the memoirs of what he went through. He was singled out for interrogation and torture. And on this day, he was beaten, stomped on, and whipped more than 300 times during a single day. Allow me to read to you his words as he recounts what happened that day. After my first beating, I was almost afraid to pray for courage, lest I should have another opportunity of exercising it. But my unspoken prayer was there, and without God's help, I doubt whether I should have come through. Long hours of ignoble pain were a severe test. In the middle of the torture, they asked me if I still believed in God. When, by God's help, I said, I do. They asked me why God did not save me. And by the help of His Holy Spirit, I said, God does save me. He does not save me by freeing me from pain or punishment, but He saves me by giving me the Spirit to bear it. God does save me. He does not save me by freeing me from pain or punishment, but He saves me by giving me the Spirit to bear it. And when they asked me why I did not curse them, I told them that it was because I was a follower of Jesus Christ who taught us that we were all brethren. The way of the kingdom is Jesus, the cross-shaped way. And when Jesus surrendered to the cross, he surrendered to the will of the Father rather than to his own will. And for Bishop Wilson, 
he also surrendered to the way of the kingdom rather than his own will. He surrendered to the Father's will that he might go through this pain and suffering, this persecution, rather than his own will. And to be counted worthy in the midst of suffering and persecution, we choose the cross-shaped way. We choose surrender. We choose surrender knowing that the one who first chose the cross is with us through it all. When you go through, when we go through pain, suffering and affliction, which way would you choose? For us modern Christians living in Singapore today, overt persecution may not be happening at the moment. How then do we apply this? But can I suggest to you, friends, that persecutions will come? Because it says in God's word that persecutions will come. And perhaps in some small ways they have already arrived here. When we are oppressed for our faith, when we are rejected for our stance, when we are shamed into silence for our biblical views. And when persecution grows, will we be prepared? Will we be ready to live out the cross-shaped life? Will we be prepared to surrender to God's will rather than our own? And in our daily afflictions now, whatever we are going through now, right now, if we're not prepared to die to ourselves, to surrender to God's will, to surrender to God's way, then maybe when persecutions come in the future, we will not be prepared to choose God's way. So my challenge to you, friends, this morning, whatever you're going through, God calls you to live a life of surrender to live a life of surrender to the cross-shaped life, to the cross-shaped way, because of the cross-shaped kingdom. To be counted worthy, surrender to the cross-shaped life. When persecutions come, will we be counted worthy? And the second soul-searching question from today's text is, when the end comes, will we have rescued any? In these five verses, there are two parts to Paul's train of thought. The first is the certainty of God's justice in the midst of persecution, and the second is the outworking of God's justice, first to those who have persecuted the church and then to unbelievers in general who reject God. So everything in history is moving towards the return of the king, and when the king comes again, he will surely judge. And let me read to you what he will do. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. Verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with the everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. So Paul here is talking first about the judgment of the persecutors of the church and then to unbelievers in general. So what sort of unbelievers are they? So Paul here connects the idea of ignorance, they do not know God, and disobedience, they do not obey God. And then you have to ask, why does he put these two ideas together? And when you think about why he connects the two ideas together, it suggests that Paul is not really thinking about people who have never ever heard the gospel. He is probably referring to people who have heard the gospel or heard about it, but then they choose to ignore, refuse to acknowledge, or to disobey it. There is a willfulness in their rejection of God. 
And there is a cause for this willful rejection. In Greek, the words used for punishment here, that he will punish the guilty, the unbelievers, is two words, diken, tisusin. And literally, it means to pay the penalty. To pay the penalty. So there is a cost to be paid. There is a cost to our decisions, either good or bad. And some of the costs that we need to pay maybe will not happen immediately, but we will have to pay it in the end. So for example, if you catch HIV because of sexual promiscuity, it may not hit you until some years down the road. And if for lunch you decide not to have Wagyu beef, but decide to have deep fried pork belly, it may not clog your coronary arteries immediately, but eat enough of it and you will pay the price at the end. There is a cost to everything. And if you choose to reject God, one day, eventually, we all stand before God's judgment on the Day of Judgment and we will have to account for the choices we have made. We will pay the price. And what is that price? And Gordon Fee here speaks of Paul. He says, For Paul, eternal glory has to do with being in the presence of the Father and the risen Lord. The eternal judgment of the wicked is the absolute loss of such glory. What does that mean? What makes hell, hell? Eternal destruction, then, is the complete opposite of eternal life. An eternity separated from the perfect presence of God, an eternity without the hope of goodness, of love, and of peace, and of glory. Right now, even right now, God is present in this world, and we call that providence. So God makes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on everyone and we breathe the air freely. That is the gift of his grace and goodness to all of us, all of us humankind. God is the source of all goodness. And even in this world where there is so much evil, God has not abandoned us. That is providence. But hell is being separated from the source of goodness and all possibility of goodness. And the awfulness of such a destiny is not something that we talk about or is very fashionable these days. For many in our world these days, there's increasing belief that there is no afterlife, that at the point of death, we will just cease to exist. But God's word tells us, it says here clearly that eternity is real and the choices we make in this lifetime have consequences and eternal consequences. So God's justice demands judgment. But the story does not end there. Because God has also provided his own solution to God's justice. God's definitive answer to justice is a cross-shaped life. The life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice and yet he died for the guilty. When we think about the cross, what compelled the cross? Love compelled the cross. Love compelled God to make the cross his answer to injustice, his answer to justice, the need for judgment at justice. Love compelled God to make the cross the answer. We as God's people, we know the end. What then should compel us to live for the gospel? 
What then should compel us to reach out to our unbelieving family? What then should compel us to step up for prayer walks? What then should compel us to participate in mission trips? What then compels us to reach out to our neighbours, to bless migrant workers? It's not just about knowing the end, my friends. It is the love of Christ that compelled the cross, that compels us then to live for the gospel. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. Let me read it one more time. For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It is the love of Christ that compelled the cross. It is the love of Christ that compelled him to go to the cross to die for our sins that justice might be done. And we as God's people, when we have encountered, experienced and received this incredible love, this incredible cross-shaped love, it is this cross-shaped love that compels us to then live for the gospel. It's because of the cross-shaped love of Jesus that compels us to go forth and make disciples, to rescue a world that is desperately lost without Him. And when the end comes, will our hearts break for the lost? When the end comes, will we have rescued any? At this point of the sermon, I'm not done yet, but I'd like us to pause and as God brings a name to your mind, someone whom you love, or perhaps a colleague, a friend, who do not yet know Jesus, would you bring that name before the Lord? And just begin to bless by praying for the person that God brings to your mind right now. I'm just going to give us a few moments to do that. Father, make us instruments of your gospel as we bring your cross-shaped love to these ones. Amen. One more application. Alpha is starting on the 23rd of August. And if God puts someone upon your mind to invite to Alpha, please pluck up the courage to ask. It doesn't kill us to ask. So pluck up the courage to ask someone, to invite someone to Alpha. I'm going to close with this story. It's the story of a saint. And last week, Covenant lost a saint to glory. Last week, I had the privilege of attending the wake of a Covenanter, Auntie Mary Leong. Auntie Mary is in white, and she's also doing this in the other photo. She was a lovely lady. And I sat in the wake and listened to story after story of how wonderful Auntie Mary was. I was very deeply moved. So what stood out for me is her faith, a very simple 
faith, a simple obedience, but a very deep faith. So when she was over 60 years ago, I think she probably did this about 10 years ago, she decided to join IDT. And her fellow IDT friends who are all much younger than her will always be amazed at how hard she studied and how she would always get 100 marks on every test. So for those of us who, you know, it's okay, no judgment here. But the common thread throughout all the eulogies given was how much she loved the people around her. She would go out of her way to bless and to serve others. And I believe that Auntie Mary's love wasn't just born out of the fact that she was a good person. I believe Auntie Mary had deeply understood and deeply experienced the love and forgiveness of God personally. That's what compels her to share the same love with others. Auntie Mary did not have an easy life. Single-handedly, she brought up three daughters while estranged from her husband. And while things were difficult for decades, she did not bear a hint of bitterness about her life circumstances, choosing at every step to continue to love and to forgive. So about seven years ago, Auntie Mary decided to take back her husband because at that point, he had been estranged from the family for decades, but he was so seriously ill, bedridden, and she decided she would take him back and she would care for him. Now, this is not an easy decision to make because he was so sick, he was bedridden. But she decided, I'm going to take him back, I'm going to forgive him, and I'm going to care for him. And she did that. And she took care of him for two full years while bedridden before he passed on. You know, Auntie Mary could have said no. You know, if we look at it from a human point of view, you could have easily said no. But she chose to do it. She chose to take care of him because love compelled her to do so. And she hoped that he would come to know the Lord like she did. And through living out this love and forgiveness, she proclaimed what God's love is truly like. And to her great joy and to the joy of the CG who had been supporting her all this while, through this journey, the husband came to know the Lord and was baptized shortly before he passed on. What kind of love, what kind of hope do we proclaim to the world? We have an incredible cross-shaped love to proclaim. Auntie Mary has inspired me by proclaiming the gospel of love, by living it out, this gospel of love and forgiveness to everyone around her. And she lived out this cross-shaped love and proclaimed a cross-shaped gospel, not just through her words, but through the way in which she lived, through the way in which she loved, and through the way she forgave. And today's God's word tells us that justice will be done at the final end. Justice will be done at the final end. But God calls us to live out a cross-shaped love. Live out a cross-shaped love that proclaims the cross-shaped gospel in our lives this day. As we come to a close, Dave is going to minister to us a song that speaks about this cross-shaped love. Would you now begin to let the words of this song speak deeply into your hearts? Because until we come back to the place where we encounter the cross-shaped love of Jesus, it will not compel us to live for the gospel. 
that compels us. It is the love of Christ that compels us. But some of us have forgotten what this love is like. Some of us have forgotten what this cross-shaped love is like. There is a price to be paid for justice and Jesus paid it. There is a price to be paid for justice but Jesus paid it. And today, today as you come before the Lord, and if your heart is hardened, your heart has forgotten what the cross-shaped love of Jesus is like, I'm going to invite you to reach out your hands to Him not to raise your hands or to stand up in response to me, but to reach out to Jesus again and say, I want to experience and encounter your love afresh. I want to comprehend fully, deep in my heart and my spirit what this love is like. If you want to do, just reach forth your hands to Him. Just reach forth your hands to Him and say, Lord, I need to encounter this cross-shaped love afresh. I need to encounter you afresh. I need to comprehend what is the height, what is the depth, what is the breadth, what is the length of the love of Christ for me. For me. I need to comprehend again what kind of price you pay for me. And if that's you, just reach forth your hands to Him and say, Lord, help me understand how much you love me. Today, help me understand how much you love me. Father, I pray for these ones who are reaching out their hands to you, not to anybody else, but to you. Because we come before the cross and we recognize the price that it was paid. The magnificence of that love. 
how amazing that love is. And Lord, we come back to that place where we want to say we receive. And today, Lord, we want to say we love you. Lord, would you do a mighty breakthrough in each of our hearts and our spirits today that we might come to a place where we encounter and we experience in this fullness the love of Jesus Christ, this cross-shaped love, this cross-shaped love again. And we pray that it will compel us. It will compel us to live for you. It will compel us to love like you do. So Lord, we pray for your love to come and make a significant breakthrough in each and every life represented here today, in each and every family represented here today. So we ask that you make yourself known in our lives by the way in which we live, through our cross-shaped love and through our cross-shaped life, may our lives proclaim this cross-shaped gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us rise even as we sing. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you, Jesus. I'm in awe of you. May your love ran red in my sin. spent some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. Should you require more assistance, kindly call 6892-6811 or you can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.